we here very much have a, uh, a philosophy, you know, based on having a strong upskilling program on a philosophy of hire for attitude, train for skill. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, hey, it's episode 160. Today, we're discussing buying a manufacturing company and reimagining upskilling. Our guest this week is Bill Berrien, CEO of Pindell Global Precision, a contract manufacturer just outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, specializing in complex machining services. Anything from CNC Swiss machining to multi-access turning and milling, Bill and the team at Pindell are able to provide uncommon solutions at scale that you're not going to be able to get at your typical machine shop. That's because they are continually investing in new technology and their people, which we'll come across in today's interview. So here are three things you can expect from this episode. First, we'll get to know Bill and his background and what he learned from his time in the military. Second, we spend a lot of time talking about what it was like acquiring Pindell Global Precision. Bill bought Pindell back in 2012, and this part of the story is packed with lessons on how to look for new opportunities in a legacy business. Whether you're planning to buy a manufacturing company or not, as I've said on this show before, there's plenty to learn from a general innovation, expansion strategy, and people perspective. Finally, we talk about upskilling. Bill shares his thoughts on how upskilling must continue to evolve in its approach, as well as how he's doing it at his own shop at Pindell. As always, if you want to learn more, check out the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 160. And of course, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to this, whether that's Spotify, whether that's Apple Podcasts. It really does help boost the show and put it on the map. And with all of that said, it is now time to jump into this week's interview. Let's meet up with Bill Berrien. Bill, we're here at Pindell's headquarters today, out here in New Berlin, Wisconsin. But if we were having this conversation over a beverage somewhere in the greater Milwaukee area, where would that be? Tell us about this spot. So, Chris, Manufacturing Happy Hour, my uh, favorite spot for a happy hour is Buckley's Bar and Restaurant, Cass Street, just north of Northwestern Mutual. Been there since about 2007. And it actually played a uh, key role in my acquisition hunt. Really? It did. So I was on a two-year dedicated search that ultimately led to Pindell. And if I ever controlled the meal, when I probably met with, I don't know, 150 people during the search, if I controlled the meal, we would meet at Buckley's. So I got to know the whole team. I love the culture. I have a personal bias for restaurants that have been owner on the premises. And that takes it, Buckley's takes it to the next level. Mm. It's actually owner in residence. So Mike Buckley and his family live, live just above the restaurant. So awesome. Highly recommend. The bar and the server crew are excellent. What is the go-to drink or the go-to dish there if you had to pick? 
Yeah. So living in Wisconsin for 21 years, wherever I go, I go with the brandy old fashioned. Mm. They make an excellent one across the spectrum, sweet, sour, and pressed. Love that as well as the really innovative cocktail selection, uh, another the, the blanket I'm a big fan of. And then they've got this great appetizer, truffle fried artichokes, artichoke hearts. Okay. Uh, and then on uh, Friday, the fish fry. So really... Uh, Yep. Great spot. I love a good fish fry. Sucker for a good fish fry. Obviously, you got to have a brandy old fashioned at the beginning of your Indeed. fish fry to make it proper. So, well, let's say that's the setting. Then we're yes. at Buckley's having a fish fry, got a brandy old fashioned. So, this is a question a lot of investors ask companies that yep. are they're looking to invest in, right? But this is also, I think, a very good bar type of question yep. as well over beverages. So, what is something you believe about upskilling that almost everyone else in the industry might see differently about? You know, I, Chris, I think there's a, a bias in society for determining or limiting someone's potential based on their education to date and maybe their early roles in life. And I think one of the real opportunities for upskilling is to, you know, release that potential to be able to pl apply to someone that has great attitude, you know, a skill set that moves them in a direction that perhaps their, you know, their, their initial education in the first 18, 22 years of life might not have supported. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, we here very much have a philosophy, but, you know, based on having a strong upskilling program on a philosophy of hire for attitude, train for skill. And, and I know you have, let's say, some progressive takes on upskilling, things yep. you're doing, things you're implementing here. We're going to get yep. to those a little later in the interview. Great. But first, I want to get to know your background a Great. little bit, because you're not the first person I've had on this show from the Navy who has a Navy background. In fact, I know you know some of them, like Jason T. Ray, for exactly. example. Yep. But Big I, fan of Jason. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think. You might be the first Navy SEAL that's been on the show. So... It, it, again, let's go back to Buckley's. How do you describe what a Navy SEAL does or what differentiates a Navy SEAL when you're having a beverage with someone? I think a lot of people have an idea, but let's have that bar conversation. Yeah. So, I mean, the Navy SEAL, as is, you know, across the, the nation's special operations forces, you know, it's a highly vetted, highly trained individual that is very comfortable working in groups hmm. with advanced technology, but, you know, willing to apply it in unconventional ways to achieve sort of outsized objectives. Mm -hmm. You know, the, I think the vetting is pretty classic. You've seen that on the Discovery Channel and yes. all. And, you know, and I, you, know, you, you certainly appreciate that. It's very much a, you know, a meritocracy. So no one's sort of predestined going in to, yeah. to get through it. And there's a, a nice opportunity in that. But it is very focused on achieving high expectations mm -hmm. and accomplishing the mission again, mm -hmm. perhaps in unconventional ways. And it's a culture, you know, it's a culture of earning your trident every day, we say, mm -hmm. which is, you know, trident is you're sort of the official signifier of, of being a seal. And it's not just earn it mm -hmm. and you're good to go forever. No, it's, it's a culture of earning it every day. And, and I always think of at least one of the first things that comes to mind when I think of Navy SEALs and Navy SEAL training is being able to make decisions under, let's say, 
a plethora of unfavorable mm -hmm. conditions, whether it's sleep deprivation, whether it's the pressure of the immediate spot and having to pull it off with your teammates. Those are, those are some of the things that, that at least come to myself, come to mind as an individual without a military background. So first of all, thank you for your service oh, and everything Loved you've it. done. I have to ask then, how did your Navy SEAL experience training, all of that tend itself to your career in manufacturing then? You know, it, well, I mean, it's, it's, I'd say going back to my, my time in the teams, I really embraced and loved the leadership side of life. Mm -hmm. I, you know, both channeling a group's efforts towards a common goal, mm -hmm. but also, you know, my personal leadership style is one of trying to keep the, keep ego to a minimum mm -hmm. and, you know, as part of that sort of showcasing and trying to ele elevate the individual members of the team, you know, expecting more of them, but giving them the tools to uh, tools to accomplish more. So, you know, those those factors, it's always struck me as it's, it would be a lot of fun to be running a business and then ideally being a run, running a business that you have a pretty high ownership share in. And so that was the journey back then. And then. You know, but the, the two challenges when you have that ambition to acquire a company is number one, acquiring the skills to be able to do it well when mm -hmm. it eventually happens. And then number two is acquiring the capital to be able to make it happen. So it's not you can't just jump from from simply having that ambition to the to the to the end state. It was a sort of a, a 20 year journey between, you know, actually seal, seal team time and then industry time after that, about, probably about a 20 year journey. And, and I want to ask you about the acquisition yep. of this company here in a bit. But first, I have to ask you a question that came up based on the way you described being a SEAL is that you're on a team that's expected to achieve outsized expectations. Yep. What does achieving outsized expectations look like in manufacturing? Well, I mean, uh, number one, it is expecting a high revenue dollar per employee. Mm -hmm. So trying to create a lot of value, a lot of output for the team that you have and trying to grow that in that sort of sc a scaled fashion. Mm -hmm. And I think trying to have a broader impact on on your ecosystem, you know, mm -hmm. on your community, on your school system, but then also on the on the business community and being involved there, you know, as well as being involved in the, the, the in the region initiatives of various various types. So I think manufacturing is a terrific platform for that those those ambitions, and nicely manufacturing is 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 core to this region and its history. So it's about getting out and making an impact beyond the four walls of Pindell Global Precision. For me, it is. Yes, it is. Yes. And what I want, I'm interested to talk about this company because you mentioned you acquired it. This was back in 2012. So you've mm -hmm. had it for a little over a decade now. What did you see in the business that got the wheels turning to say, hey, this is, this is a business that I want to acquire and take the next step in my career here? Right. Well, so great question, Chris. When I went on the acquisition hunt, I had a few criteria. Prior to going on the on the hunt, I had been a Six Sigma black belt at GE, hmm. which was about how do you use data to apply continuous improvement to manufacturing processes and other processes. Mm -hmm. And it was that that Six Sigma was a, a great skill set lending itself towards manufacturing. So one of my key criteria was not only did I want to acquire a manufacturing company, 
but I wanted to acquire one that had higher unit volume mm -hmm. so that improvements made on one of those units could get cascaded across a much higher volume as opposed to making Interesting. fewer, bigger, discrete things. I wanted to make many more common, you know, unit similar things. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and I was only looking in the Milwaukee area with within an hour drive and, you know, certain size and dynamics. But what I really liked about Pindell was <clears throat> number one, the customer base. I think mm -hmm. that's that's critical. What are the quality of earnings? What is the the predictability and consistency of that acquisition going to be under new management? Yeah, uh, you know, and is it in you know how much value was being contributed by the prior owner, mm -hmm. and when that owner stops working as actively in the company, will that will that value continue? So, quality of earnings repeatable processes, great team, and a, a little bit of a path where you can, where I as the new owner can add some value. Um, yeah. That, that last one I'm interested to understand a bit more about, because I think getting a feel for the financials, the customers, how the business is yep. cash flowing, all that makes sense. I mean, the, it's business, right? You can yep. get a lot of that from the financial statements. Where I'm always interested when someone's talking about buying a company is how do you look at the market and how do you look at what that company is doing to say, if I ran this company, we could start doing X, Y, and Z, or maybe we just start doing X really, really, really well. Yep. And that either opens up a new market, it increases our margin. There are a lot of different ways you could go about it. So tell me what, what you saw as the potential for growth. Great. So great, great question. When I came in, I came in year 65 of the company. Mm -hmm. So we just, just last year celebrated our 70th anniversary, 75th anniversary. Mm -hmm. So for the first 65 years, the company, the one of the main technologies had been multi-spindle screw machines. So World War II invented technology, cam-operated machines. Everything we had had been updated to vintage 80s and 90s, but there weren't, there weren't electronic controls on it, but you could get an amazing amount of so sophisticated parts at volume. When mm -hmm. you have an eighth spindle, you're basically cutting in an eighth the cycle time it makes. It takes to make a part, but the, for the first 65 years, the founder and his son, you know, had had a philosophy of let's blank off parts in the multi-spindle and let's bring them over to then less lower capable CNC operations or manual operations to add additional features and that couldn't be done just by the design on, on the multi-spindles. So in essence, you're talking about multi-operation parts. And after the first operation, which might be you know, pretty mechanically automated, after that, there's a lot of human touching, setups, potential for quality issues, cascading through the batches, okay. all of that. And so my vision was, let's take this grand business of multi-operational, multi-op parts, and let's invest in the technology to do these parts complete. And instead of having the team members resetting up and running 
running those multiple operations, let's train those team members to run otherwise more advanced technology that is making those parts complete and allowing each person to, in essence, create more value and in turn capture more value. Yeah. So it, it's sort of a, I think, an important transformation there because low cost countries mm-hmm. have traditionally followed that same approach of multi-operation, let's just throw people at it, and they're throwing low-cost people at it. And they were eating our lunch for a while. Mm -hmm. But with the advances in automation technology, CNCs, all of that, there's actually the awesome opportunity for you know, Americans to be creating a tremendous amount more value at really great American wages. Mm-hmm. So it's not a low cost play. It's actually a, a high automation play that we're just going to capture hopefully an increasing share of the, the manufacturing output of the, the world. So if I heard you right, you saw that the first part of the step or the first part of the manufacturing process was automated. But then when you got into the next steps, that's where there was more human intervention. Correct. It wasn't as automated, potential for quality control issues, all of the things that come with that. And you're like, I can start automating this, training yep. people, and we can start being more competitive on some of, let's say, these more complex parts, if Correct. you will. Is that all right? Exactly. It's exactly. a great story. That, I mean, that makes perfect sense as to where you can look at a company and say, hey, this is what they're doing really well today. This mm-hmm. is what I can bring to the table. Mm-hmm. My, my next question was kind of uh, around that same vein. Like, what did you see was working well? And then what did you see that could be changed. Would that be your same answer for that? Or are there other elements that you'd you'd have a different answer in this regard? Well, you know, we talk about the opportunity of the the automation in the actual machining of the parts. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we're going to do them, go from multiple operations to a single operation. But I, I think the same thought process applies to the whole process surrounding the actual making of the parts, Mm -hmm. how you quote the parts, how you program the parts for the CNCs, how you, or for the multi-spindles, how you program your quality, your quality documents and your PPAPs and all of that, all the way to how you're programming the machines. And so very quick answer would be the opportunity, not just in the automation of the manufacture of the parts, but how do you leverage technology to use the people you have to get accelerate the volume of parts that you can get into the machines to sort of cinch that digital thread that's running through manufacturing. And instead of a person, you know, where older technology, they could program a machine in X amount of time with newer technology, they could program it in a 10th of the time. Mm -hmm. And that all allows them to do sort of 10 times the work in the same amount of time. I'm glad you brought up your people. I'm going to ask you about your folks here in just a second. Couple more questions on on the acquisition side. Uh, one thing that I'm curious about is you can get a lay of the land of a company a company you're purchasing when pre-purchase, right? Right. But I'm sure once you're in here for three months, six months, whatever it is, you start noticing other things that you probably didn't see yep. on the front end. That's just the nature of any any type of purchase. Yep. So you know what what did you look for in the beginning, and then what did you start seeing once you were out on the shop floor a bit more? Like I'm curious how this story started a bit. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Number one, I was I need to give credit to the the seller of the business, Mark Mark Bindell, who, mm-hmm. you know, most 
In most instances, when a seller sells the business, as soon as the money hits the bank account, they sort of you know lose interest, even if mm-hmm. you have a, a transition agreement, things like that. But Mark actually stayed on board full time for two years and then another three years. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah, All right. par- part time and yeah. had a real selfless interest in both my success and the and the business's success, you know, and the employees and all, which was really unusual. Did you get the vibe he was going to be that type of person when you were looking at buying the company. I've got to think that factors into a decision as well. I mean, it did. I mean, quite quite honestly, we were introduced a year to the day before I acquired. And when I was introduced, started to proceed pretty quickly with acquisition discussions. But then I had a, a family medical issue that came up that I had to prioritize higher. So I put the acquisition on the shelf for about four or five months. Mm-hmm. And then when that issue successfully resolved. I was able to take it off the shelf, but all that time keeping in touch with Mark and really got that, you know, to your point, that sense that selfless individual interest in the success of the business and it was going to work out, work out well in that regard. And he was, you know, valuable in helping me think through changes that I was considering Mm -hmm. and the challenges that you see that he might've been living with for 30 years, but you see a sort of a different, different way to go about things. You know, they say evolution explains everything. Mm -hmm. Well, when Mark was running the business, he was sole sales, sole quoting, and a lot of customer service. Mm -hmm. As in, he didn't have a team helping him with those activities. And in that environment, He's not going to go off and have the time and the latitude to only find the best parts and the best customers and be able to say no to no to other stuff. Spread a little thin is what I'm hearing. Going to be spread thin, and the bias is going to be to have a smaller set of customers and to do a larger share of their <clears throat> machining needs, whether they were a fit for the technology and the the capabilities of the company Pindell or not. Mm -hmm. And what you end up with there is a dynamic where every RFQ that the customer puts on, puts out, I think there's a bias towards getting that, being awarded that part, whether it's a fit or not, because otherwise it's an opportunity for some competitor to come in, perhaps get a lousy part, Mm -hmm. but get that relationship with the customer, come up the soft underbelly and... Mm -hmm. I hear you. No threaten. And so that's what we came into was fewer customers, but a really big share of their machining spend, regardless of whether it was, in some cases, parts that just weren't a good fit for our machines and would tie up people, they tie up processes, and they were frankly a hindrance to growth. So one of the big aha moments along the way was that sort of realization of what do you want to be when you grow up? And we had, you know, strategy discussions over a number of years. And we focused on our niche based on the equipment, based on the people, based on the systems was complex parts at medium volume. Mm -hmm. So complexity, it's got to have that materials, tolerances, features. If it's too simple, we don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Medium volume. We now say over on the CNCs, our ideal volumes are between a thousand pieces and two hundred thousand pieces. On the multi-spindle, it's a hundred thousand to three million, and we just are willing to say we do not do low volume well mm-hmm. prototypes, hundred piece runs, two hundred piece runs. 
but we also don't do automotive high well. Sure. You know, in either end of that spectrum, those are operations where the equipment, the processes, the people all, are all geared to, to serving those markets well. Mm-hmm. And we did not want to contort ourselves to, to serve those markets well. And while we didn't have automotive high, when you look through the portfolio a couple of years into the acquisition, we had a lot of low volume. We had a lot of low, low value add, mm-hmm. simple parts, things like that. And we <clears throat> developed the courage over the time to say, we're sorry. Those, Mr. Customer, those aren't a fit. Yeah. There are shops that are better configured to do that for you. And we don't want to. And we would separate ourselves from those parts, either you know, just being honest with the customer, raising mm-hmm. the price, elements like that. And yeah, that was, I think that's... It was really a super valuable decision point for mm-hmm. the company because once you figure out what you're going to focus on, that allows you to put all your chips on the table in that direction. Yeah. And it's, it's done wonders for sort of streamlining the operations, uh, a lot of clarity around what we're going to be training people to do, what kind of equipment we want to buy and train people to handle. So, yeah. yeah. So you got to be more discerning. About the work you took on. You got Much to pick the, pick the work that was ultimately best for your company, best for your customers, and yep. say no to the things that, quite frankly, wasn't really a good fit for either of you Correct. at that point. Correct. So if I were to summarize this whole part of the conversation around, if someone's looking to buy a manufacturing business out there, I don't know how yep. many of our audience members might be thinking about this, yep. but I heard you talk about the integrity of the previous ownership, them sticking around. You talk about looking at the company, seeing what they do well, and also seeing where you think you can make an impact. Yep. What are the is there anything else that people need to be looking at if they're if they're considering buying their own manufacturing business? Yeah, I mean I I think you can have the best model, you can have feel like you have it all all wired and it's ready for prime time. Mm-hmm. But you got to have a plan or at least a capacity to accommodate situations you don't expect. Mm-hmm. I know I acquired in 2012, I think 2016, the oil fell out of the mm-hmm. the bottom fell out of the oil market. Yeah. And I didn't realize that we had as much concentration in higher oil prices in the energy market as we did. We mm-hmm. didn't sell directly into the energy market, but mm-hmm. somehow that had a you know a, a really challenging impact on the company. So long story short, you gotta have some some capacity to accommodate unforeseen circumstances, the plan not working out. I often say we are now where my plan had us. We are now at year 11 where Mm -hmm. my plan had us at year five or six. Yeah. Uh, And you need to manage expectations. Fortunately, I I was able to acquire the the company without without partners. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's that's been a blessing in the sense of control, mm-hmm. but I've had to, the benefit of partners there is- There are pros and cons to it. That's right. Yeah. Other, other thoughts, others to weigh in, so you, you, know, you figure out how to virtually recreate that dynamic. The next round of our interviews coming up right after a word from our sponsor. If you're in the industrial automation world, then you know ISA, the International Society of Automation. But you might not know about their upcoming Black Friday week sale. 
as a nonprofit professional association of engineers, technicians, and management engaged in industrial automation, ISA is one of the best societies out there if you're looking for direction in industry standards or training courses for technicians, engineering, cybersecurity, certifications, you name it. And if you go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash blackfriday23 for midnight on November 20th through November 27th, 2023, You'll be able to save big on books, standards, training courses, and ISA merchandise. As the globally trusted provider of foundational standards-based technical resources for our industry, ISA strives to build a better world through automation. Again, don't miss out on Black Friday week deals from November 20th through 27th by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash blackfriday23. And now, back to today's episode. Well, I appreciate you taking us through the whole acquisition experience. Mm -hmm. Super helpful. We're going to switch gears to the other side of this conversation, which is upskilling. So, and we talked a little bit about that at the start, but maybe let's set some baseline. What does upskilling look like today at Pindell, for example? Great. So, having spent almost nine years in in the military, one of the realize that one of the most important aspects of the U.S. military that made it so powerful was its non-commissioned officer corps, which Mm -hmm. is that level of senior enlisted leadership, petty officers, chiefs, sergeants that are, are leading the troops. And you see it you know, countries that don't have an NCO core, Russia, all the challenges there, U.S. does. And we took, we've taken pages out of the U.S. military's playbook for training NCOs, where we have multiple layers of development, six layers of machinist, four levels of quality, four levels of industrial maintenance. Into each level, we weave Online classes through Tooling U. Mm-hmm. We've got an unlimited unlimited subscription to Tooling U. We have shop floor qualifications. We have NIMS credentialing, a nationally recognized credential system. And it's all part of our belief that everyone is looking for a profession. Mm-hmm. That a profession shouldn't be just lawyers, doctors, and accountants. It should be a profession should be enduring, it should be transferable, and it should be valuable, lucrative. And just like an accountant that moves from Milwaukee to another firm or Milwaukee to a another state, they shouldn't lose their value. And similarly, our advanced manufacturing professionals should have the same opportunity. So we love cr- that. Yeah. We mm-hmm. created this program so that their skills and their value isn't solely specific to Pindell, that they go to another firm, another company, they go to another state, that what they have learned here is captured in, in, in sort of a professional recognition and, and, if, and that value follows them. So we've got those, those elements of it. And what, what that training and upskilling program has really allowed us to do is to hire for attitude, train for skill. Mm-hmm. So we are Look, it's it's always great to have the the we are hiring sign out front. Always got it there. And if you can find someone who's experienced in the areas you need, awesome, hire them. Mm-hmm. This day and age, that's challenging. And so we are really looking for those with the right attitude who are already on the team and they demonstrate capacity to do more mm-hmm. or those that might be able to join the team. Yeah. 
and do more. And so we've got this really fun record of identifying talent. And sometimes the talent self-identifies itself, mm-hmm. giving that talent opportunity, training both in-house or with vendors or with creatively structured upskilling programs outside to bring the skill level up so those individuals can create more value. And, you know, in some cases you're, they're seeing from prior jobs coming in or from in-house jobs moving, moving over, you know, anywhere from like 20 to 80% plus gains in, in, in wage structure. Well, you were, when we were having lunch before this conversation, you shared a story about how there was a woman on the janitorial staff here that I think you yep. said your team members identified and said, hey, this person could be great for the team. And now, you know, she's also upskilled and she's on, I think you said, on the CNC equipment right Correct. now. I mean, perfect example of hire for attitude and then train the skills afterwards as well. That's right. That's right. Outside janitorial service team, our our in-house team saw her hustle and said, you know, how about we bring her on board? And, you know, that's worked out really well because once you're on that path of embracing this technology and, you know, allowing the business to invest in you and you in turn to invest in yourself, mm-hmm. it's really limitless where it can lead in, the, in this day and age. Because no one's, you're not restricted. The, 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 the market rewards the skill level. Yeah. Well, let's say we're having our second old fashioned at there this point. Let's say yep. maybe one of us has switched to a spotted cow. I don't know. Whatever the, whatever the Wisconsin beverage is. You know, let's, let's hear what the, the future of upskilling looks like, according to Bill. Right. right. This is these are your perspectives. Feel free to talk about the things you're doing here or where you think the industry needs to take some next next steps as a whole. Yep. Yep. So I think the key aspects of upskilling is that there exist already out there, already out there in the market, lots of different um, opportunities for an individual to acquire more skill. It might be a CNC Swiss OEM that offers training courses. It might be some 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 group that offers software courses, a esprit training, things like that. And so, number one, as part of any sort of let's say regional upskilling program, I think there's an opportunity to serve almost as a as a clearinghouse mm-hmm. saying, okay, how do we give transparency to companies and individuals of what already is it, what already exists out there and point, point them to those courses saying this would be a valuable in a machinist curriculum, machinist upskilling. Here are 10 different courses being offered. Here's where they're offered, all of that. The other aspect of it is you've got the clearinghouse, but then where it doesn't exist, I think you, I call it sort of the coordination center concept of let's have industry figure out what does what are the, what are those skills and how are we going to let's have this this group sort of identify where can you coordinate those skills to be offered maybe it's working with a technical college on a special program that would be repeatable and you know various shorter modular levels that are offered around industry-friendly hours so individuals can, companies can send the individuals to get that training, say four hours a day, then they come back, they add value, maybe that's three or four days a week. Mm-hmm. And maybe that that's like an eight-week eight, eight week long module. And then there's module two 
in module three. You know, the challenge is a lot of the technical colleges are focused on filling seats with full-time students. No often FAFs student loan documentation, asking them to pay ahead of time, hoping the job's on the other end. Mm -hmm. But based on the school hours, not really able to work while they're going to school. I think the model of the future is industry-directed, industry paid for. Mm -hmm. I do think there's an element of a public contribution of a portion of that cost, maybe mm -hmm. an offsetting, because the reality is every one more skilled person out there in society is in addition to the industrial commons and where a benefit to the industrial commons beyond that one company and you know, where there's a public benefit, I think there's a an opportunity for a public contribution. Mm -hmm. So I could see models there, but it really, unlike in a lot of other areas, I think it does need to be industry driven, industry paid for caveat for a public contribution towards that, facilitated or offered around industry-friendly hours, mm -hmm. you know, and having a sort of a certificate-based stackable yeah. aspect to it. The certificates has been a big theme yep. on the podcast lately. Just a yep. lot of people bring that up, that that's the way we know when someone goes from company X to company Y, that yep. they know what they're getting. Similar, you know, back to your profession comment, right? Correct. You know, lawyers, doctors, you pretty much know what you're getting with those individuals because they're so credentialed. So love that answer. I feel like a very appropriate answer for someone that's been running his own manufacturing company for over, over a decade as yep. well. I feel like you checked a lot of very pragmatic boxes there. So, you know, what's what does upskilling look like next then as as things evolve at a company like Pindell in this case? Well, I mean, it is we're going to we're going to continue that that journey mm -hmm. of investing in the technology. Mhm. Mm training the team to leverage it to the greatest greatest extent possible. Mm -hmm. So, the you know, the just our adage here is to the team is more value created, more value captured. Mm -hmm. So if you allow us, the company, to augment the value you can create, you know, by training you to handle it to the fullest extent, all of that, that is going to lead to more value captured in a form of wages, bonuses, you know, all, all of that, all, all of those opportunities. So we're, we're, we're continuing that path. And we are <clears throat> increasingly focusing on that, that digital thread that runs through manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Interesting, we have had over the past couple of years interns coming in who have taught themselves this new technology called robotic process automation. So okay. RPA, UiPath is the, the software, software we use. But basically what that does is that automates software processes. So as an example for you, we've got a, a lot of reports that get refreshed daily out of our uh, SQL database, mm -hmm. pulled into Excel files, stored, distributed by email, all of that. Used to take our earliest arriving individuals each morning, probably an hour and a half, two hours to run all those reports. You know, we were refreshing them, storing them, all of that. These interns came in, learned this software, applied this software. It automates those processes. All that happens at three in the morning and the team that gets here early in the morning 
incredibly thankful. They don't have to do this low value work of refreshing reports, all that. They just get right at starting to use the data and make decisions mm-hmm. and communicate and, and all of that. So example for you of how to sort of think differently around some, some, of, the, some of the tools out there and the skills that need to go with those tools. What, what advice do you have for the manufacturing leaders out there about getting more out of the interns that they hire at their company? Because that's one other takeaway I got from that statement. So what is what is the way that someone that has interns on their team can make sure they're there to make meaningful contributions? Yep. Well, I think it I think it it's incumbent on the on the employer to set meaty goals. Yeah. Like don't don't have it be okay. Interns, not not a whole lot of training in the world. We're gonna have you file paper or do something 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 low level. I say expect a lot. Critical thinking skills. Mm-hmm. Be open to their input. Yeah, they um, got a fresh education. Like that, they're right. seeing the world through new eyes right now. Totally, totally. <laughs> you know, and um, and and as the employer, give them the latitude. To learn, mm-hmm. I think we always see the past past year with uh, with ChatGPT and mm-hmm. OpenAI. That's a whole other frontier. Last summer, we had an intern, Louis Strobel. In addition to the RPA work he was doing, we gave him the title of Chief AI Officer. Oh, cool! Yeah, which is basically a mandate and an ask that he follow this technology, report back to us on it, but also try to see where that could fit into our ecosystem. So we use a software. The name escapes me right now. Where during meetings you have this software invited to the meeting. Mm-hmm. It will capture the conversation, yep. transcribe the conversation, and distill the the takeaways and the. This is the second time in one week I've had a conversation about yeah. this. The first one wasn't recorded, so we'll count. The, the, there this, you go. This, this one's on, first yes, recorded. People are raving about that solution right now. I need to try to find a link in the show notes for whenever I do the outro for this. But totally. no, great tool. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and you, and you think about the our professional development program. We get a, a new micrometer. Mm. It's and we wanna what okay, what's what's the the learning objectives? How do we break down the training on this new micrometer? Mm-hmm. It's amazing when you type in that into ChatGPT, that micrometer's name, and you say, please give me a learning plan as well as practical examples on how to handle this new new micrometer. Boom. Two pages later, 15 seconds later, you have a training plan on here the the key facets of that device and here are five, ten exercises to have the new student complete. To yeah. prove they prove they know it. So I think there's a lot of you know a lot of a lot of potential there. Yeah. Um, I didn't expect to go this direction with today's conversation, but I'm glad we did because it's always good <laughs> to learn a few surprises from here. You know, as, as we get to the end of our conversation, is there anything you wish we would have talked about more that we haven't yet? You know, I know you talked a little bit about the digital thread there, or just any other advice for the the manufacturing leaders out there that, that you want to leave them with. This is a totally your choice type of question. I mean, I, I, you know, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean I I love the I love the open end. I've benefited from being a member of PMPA, so Precision Machine Products Association, mm-hmm. and I think there are similar organizations out there. And I would I would highly encourage 
manufacturers to be part of those type of organizations that are collaborative despite being competitors. They are collaborative. They're idea sharing. I've had a ton of wins and insights that can come, come from those. Mm -hmm. And in turn, I think it is those type of organizations that are going to have an increasing role in helping determine what is the learning pathway mm -hmm. so that because the reality is upskilling when, you know, when I was at GE at the time, biggest company in the world, it had all of the resources needed to invest in its own upskilling of its own people. It had Crotonville, it had courses, it had DVDs, all of that. But the reality for a small to medium-sized manufacturer is it's incredibly expensive to upskill. We're making that effort, but I can't expect everyone else to be creating mm -hmm. their own training program, identifying the resources, what are the tools, all of that. And I think that these industry trade associations and groupings of employers can realize some economies of scale, like figuring out ahead of time, okay, what are the, what are the skill sets? What are the resources? What are we going to do there? And this is interesting. I'm working on an initiative with the Metropolitan Milwaukee Association of Commerce, MMAC, around, it's in their sort of workforce development area of how do we try to maybe put some structure to upskilling on a regional basis mm -hmm. and, you know, you know, ways to sort of figure out, you know, what are the you know different training, training pathways? What are the, what are the resources available? Some things like that. So, you know, we'll, 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 we'll save that update for a, a January, February fish fry with, with, with old fashions at Buckley's. I and, like uh, that. Yeah. I like we'll, that. We'll, we'll, maybe we'll, we'll pull, pull a few others into our conversation too. That sounds like fun. I like when we leave an episode with a commitment for a fish fry and an old fashioned. So go. I look forward to continuing the conversation at, at Buckley's at some point. And in the meantime, Bill, I just want to take thank you for taking the time to jump on the show today. Awesome. Thank you for asking. It's really been a pleasure. Been a lot of fun. Cheers. Great. Thanks, Chris. Hey, thank you for listening. If you want to connect with Bill, if you want to learn more about Pendel Global Precision, well, hey, go to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 160. You can also learn more about PMPA over there, the Precision Machine Products Association. And of course, if you want to check out Buckley's Should You Find Yourself in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I know I will be checking out that place soon. Love a good fish fry. Love a good brandy old-fashioned. You know all of that. You were listening to the start of the episode. Anyway, show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 160. And oh, by the way, I did look up what that tool was for using AI to transcribe meetings. That is otter.ai. I actually just started using it recently to transcribe podcasts when I need to. So hey, check that out. Linked up over in the show notes as well. One final shout out to our sponsor this week, ISA, the International Society of Automation. Don't miss their Black Friday sale taking place November 21st through November 28th, 2023. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Black Friday 23. Even if you listen to this episode after that's done, hey, it'll take you over to ISA to check them out. 
Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to this show. And with that, I'll say, stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.